We come to a passage of Scripture in our study of Luke's Gospel. And if you're a guest with us, we've been studying through Luke's Gospel. That's one of the most important passages in the Gospel of Luke and really anywhere in the four Gospels. This particular scene is described in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, they set it up a little bit differently by the way that they put the stories together in order to accentuate what we get out of this particular passage. For example, you remember last week we studied the feeding of the 5,000. We talked about the place of miracles in the Christian life. And we thought about that miracle in particular in the biblical narrative. So the disciples are off a spiritual high. The man that they're committed their lives to is literally fed thousands of people with just a, a few pieces of bread and a couple of fish. They could not have been any more exhilarated to know that they've signed on board to follow the right man. They can't find a fault with him. And so he takes them to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is located about 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, if you're familiar with the, with the Jewish terrain of that time. The city of Capernaum, the village of Capernaum, where many of these stories have taken place, is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus now takes his disciples into Gentile territory, into a, into a portion of land that is very idolatrous. It was controlled by Herod Philip. Herod was a son of Herod the Great. And Philip had, well, he had founded and built Caesarea Philippi. He named it after Caesar and himself. Caesarea, Caesar, Philip, Philippi, Caesarea Philippi. It was the worship of the Roman god Pan. And there was a, a, a massive cave there. And Pan was supposedly the resident of that cave. And people would come from around the ancient world to worship Pan, and they would bring offerings to that cave. But the cave of Pan was cut into the side of a mountain, and the mountain was quite impressive. And carved out of the side of the mountain were little niches, and these niches were filled with all kinds of, of um, idolatrous statues. So it was, a, it was a city renowned for its idolatrous worship among, from the Jewish perspective, and, and a city that was really multicultural uh, from, a, from a population perspective. So Jesus takes them there after the feeding of the 5,000. He takes them there intentionally because he wants to talk with them about who he is. He wants them to think about why he's come, and he's going to talk with them about the fact that although there are many choices and many avenues by which people will try to reach God, God has provided only one means by which people can be made right with God. I want to talk with you this morning about gaining the world and losing your soul. And that's what's at stake in the discussion that Jesus has with his disciples. In the passage that John read to us, you'll notice in the opening verse, verse 18, Jesus is with his disciples, but he's praying alone. We don't know if he's off just a little bit by himself or in the midst of all of the discussion, he has a way 
of connecting and being with God even in the midst of a crowd. For those of you who have walked with God for many years, that's probably true of you. There are times when I'm talking with a person, I'm trying to minister to a person, witness to them, counsel with them, and as they're talking to me, I'm, I'm listening very intently, but at the same time, in my heart, I'm calling out for God to help me with wisdom. Give me wisdom to serve and care and, and give guidance to this person. Well, Jesus was certainly a man of prayer. That's the Gospel of Luke makes no mistake about that. Only three times in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus ever described as praying. But in the Gospel of Luke, in, at every important moment in Jesus' ministry, he's described as praying. Just leading up to this particular place, let me mention a few. For example, in Luke chapter 3, when Jesus is being baptized, only Luke says that Jesus was praying while he was being baptized. Only Luke says that. Then you go over to chapter 5 and verse 16. Only Luke says that Jesus would often go off into lonely places, deserted places, into the wilderness and pray to God. In chapter 6 and verse 12, only Luke says that before Jesus chose the 12 disciples, he spent the entire night in prayer to God. See, Luke is discipling you and me by the way he tells his stories and by the stories he tells. And by telling us that Jesus is a man of prayer and that Jesus spent an entire night praying before he chose the twelve, he's saying don't choose leaders based upon longevity of membership. When Luke was writing, the church was already established. The church was already growing in many places. He wants them to understand, don't choose leaders based upon who you think might give the most money. God chooses leaders. Let God be the, the person that leads in the selection of leadership. And so Jesus spent an entire night in prayer to God. After this story, we're going to read a, a story next week about the Mount of Transfiguration. Only Luke says that Jesus went on the Mount of Transfiguration to pray. In chapter 11, verse 1, only Luke says the disciples came to him and said, Master, teach us to pray. Uh, we could go on and on and on, but let me just mention the ones again very quickly. Leading up to this event, when he was baptized, he was praying. He would often slip away to lonely places and pray. Before he chose the twelve, he prayed. Here he prays before he says to them, who do the people say that I am? Now Luke is wanting us to understand by what he has just told us, because he's the only one that tells us Jesus was praying before he asked the question. He's praying that they will understand who he is. He's praying that they will grasp the reality that he is the Messiah. Because up to this point, none of his disciples have called him Messiah. Up to this point, none of his disciples have said, you're the Christ. He's going to pray. He's going to ask them, who do you say that I am? Peter's going to say in just a moment, we'll see, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. What's the point, Pastor, you're making? The point is, if you're a parent, if you catechize your children, that's not enough. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I hope every one of you teach your children that question. But only God can open their hearts to save them. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person is spiritually dead. You can educate a spiritually dead person. They can give right answers to, to, uh, to important questions, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes did. But only God can soften the heart. Be a person of prayer, not just for your children, but make prayer an important quality of your life. You probably have a very busy life. But most days you take a shower. Many days you mow your lawn. If you're still employed and haven't retired, then you, you drive to work. There's time to pray. We've got to discipline ourselves to seize the moments that we have to pray. Because as soon as we get home in the afternoons, we may open the door to, well, who knows how many children in this church families have large families, busy lives, a lot going on. But Jesus was a man of prayer. Why did Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, need to pray? Because he was a human being. He was the God-man. And as we read the Gospel of Luke, we're learning how to be a person, how to be a real person, how to be a godly person by looking at the example of Jesus. And if Jesus didn't feel like he could do life without praying, you know, heaven help us if we do life without praying. Let's make prayer our first choice and not our last hope. Let's not make prayer like the throwing of a Hail Mary pass on the last play of a game. It's, it's do or die. Let's saturate our lives in prayer, seizing the moments of opportunity that we have. So Jesus is a man of prayer he has been preparing them for this particular moment, not only by praying for them, but by what he's been teaching them and what he's been doing in front of them. And so he asked them, what is the world saying about me? Who do the people say that I am? Now, the answers are quite impressive. Some say John the Baptist. Now, there, John has been decapitated by this point. John is dead. So they don't think John reincarnate, but they're thinking, they're thinking he's a, a disciple of John. He's got the mantle of John, the power of John. He stepped into the role of John, much like Elisha did for Elijah. If you remember Elijah and Elisha, Elijah was the first of the great preaching prophets. He never wrote a book, but he was the first of the great preaching prophets. And you may not remember this from the Old Testament, but the Old Testament said he was taken up into heaven by a chariot of fire. He hadn't died, and his power, his mantle, his prophetic role was passed on to Elisha. So maybe John is the, Jesus is the protege of John the Baptist. Maybe he's Elijah. That is, many Jewish people believe that Elijah was coming back as the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, Jesus said that John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecies related to Elijah, but you'll remember Elijah never dying, so the, the thought was, the consideration was, well, maybe, just maybe Jesus is the forerunner of the Messiah, or maybe one of the prophets of old. Well, those are all laudatory, all very impressive, but they all fall short of recognizing Jesus, not just as Messiah, but Son of God. But in this episode, this instance is, as Messiah, it falls far short. Now, the answer to the Jesus question is what separates Christianity from every other religion. For example, Islam is very laudatory 
toward Jesus. In fact, Islam says that Jesus is the second greatest prophet that has ever lived after Muhammad. Or maybe you've heard of the New Age religions. Do you know most New Age religions have their origin and source in, uh, in the thinking of Hinduism? And Hinduism believes that Jesus was an enlightened mystic, uh, that he communicated spiritual knowledge and truth, and, and when, by believing in Jesus, you can get wrapped up into a higher uh, spiritual consciousness and eventually become one with God. Radical New Testament scholars, and most of my, in fact, my entire professional career, I've been a New Testament professor, and outside of evangelical Christianity, New Testament professors, if they believe that Jesus existed, he certainly wasn't God. He most clearly didn't perform miracles. Uh, once you begin to doubt the Bible, you're on treacherous footing. And so these New Testament scholars believe that Jesus was a moral man, a good man, an illiterate man, maybe a, a very wise philosopher, but certainly not God. And so no matter how laudatory any of those descriptions may be, they're wrong. They fall short or they're just flat out wrong. Who do you believe Jesus to be? That's the question in verse 20. He asked Peter, who do you believe the Son of Man to be? Or who do you believe that I am? And Peter answers, for the twelve, the Christ of God. He's the Messiah. They just watched him multiply fish and bread. They watched him do something akin to what happened through Moses with the feeding of the multitudes, with the, with the manna in the wilderness. But he's greater, than, he's greater than Moses. Moses didn't provide the food. Jesus provided the food. God provided the food for Moses and those who followed Moses. Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish for those who were there on that day. And he says, you're the Messiah. He's been praying for them. He performs miracles in front of them. And now they understand who he is. But who does Jesus believe himself to be? Peter's right, but not fully right. Peter's correct, but not fully correct. He's Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah that Peter's thinking about. Most Jewish people in Peter's day thought the Messiah would be a Davidic warrior that would establish an earthly kingdom, that he would restore the kingdom of David. He's a descendant of David. He'll restore the kingdom of David. He'll establish a kingdom that begins in Jerusalem and takes control of, the, uh, of much of the ancient world. He'll restore the glory days of dominion and might and military strength. But when Jesus begins to explain who he is, he's not that kind of Messiah. Yes, he's Messiah, but not that kind of Messiah. What did Jesus say about himself? In verses 21 and 22, it's paradoxical. Yes, he's the Messiah. Yes, he's the Davidic Messiah. Yes, he will establish a kingdom. Yes, he will sit on a throne, uh, but it's not the kind of throne they anticipated. He's going to establish the kingdom in a way that they hadn't expected. He is going to not rule and reign from a throne, but he will rule and reign from a cross. 
He immediately changes imagery from Messiah to Son of Man. Look at verse 21. He warned them not to tell this to anyone. But he, see, he tells us to tell it to everyone. We don't tell it to anyone. He tells them not to tell it to, to anyone, and, and they have a hard time keeping it quiet because he doesn't want a premature confrontation with the Romans. If word began to spread too quickly, the Messiah has come. He's feeding thousands of people. He's gathering himself a, quite, an, quite a, uh, a significant following. The Romans, would have, the Romans would have stepped in and demolished everything. And so he tells them to keep it quiet because he wants to reveal to them and to his closest followers what kind of Messiah he will be. It's a paradoxical picture. Instead of, instead of establishing a kingdom like they're used to thinking, he says that he's going to suffer, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be killed, and he'll be raised on the third day. This is the first of several times he's going to say this clearly, definitively, forthrightly. It doesn't sink in very quickly because it's paradoxical to everything they had ever thought, every hope they had ever had. How could someone that can raise the dead like the widow's son, feed the multitudes like, in the, like near Bethsaida that we read about last week, they can cast out demons like the Gadarene demoniac, they can speak to the wind, cease blowing. How could he be rejected killed and raised on the third day. It, it just didn't add up. It was convoluted. It's paradoxical. But that's exactly what Jesus said He came to do. That's His mission. Look at it again. Suffer, rejection, killed, resurrection. As I meditated on that verse in particular this week, two thoughts came to my mind that I want to bring to your attention. The first has to do with our sin. Our sin must be more horrible than we could ever imagine if God's Son had to die to pay its penalty. We shouldn't coddle our sin, make excuses for our sin. We need to grow in our hatred of sin. Because we may think, well, it's just a, a little white lie. We may think, well, it's just a, a sharp word to my child. It, it doesn't mean anything. They'll forget it. I'll forget it. No, we need to understand that every sin, no matter how seemingly consequential or how seemingly inconsequential in our mind, meant that Jesus had to die to secure our salvation. And in his body on the tree, he bore God's wrath in our place for every single sin. Our sin must be more horrible than we could ever imagine if God's Son had to die to pay its penalty. But the other thought that came to my mind as I meditated on that verse was this, God's love for you, and, and I use the you singular. It's, it's true congregationally but I want you to think about it individually. God's love for you must be more phenomenal than you could ever comprehend if God's Son had to die in your, your place. Don't let the world tell you that you're, you don't matter. 
You might not have a Princeton degree. You may not have a, a big home. Maybe you do have a Princeton degree. Maybe you do have a big home. But none of that matters. God loves you for who you are. Not your accomplishments or lack of accomplishments according to the world. You may be a disappointment to your parents, but the problem probably is with your parents. Because if you belong to God in Christ Jesus, His love for you is incomprehensible. You may be right now even so ashamed as you think about that love that you struggle with a particular sin. It's a sin hidden in the recesses of your, of your heart. God loves you. God, would, God wouldn't abandon you because of your struggle with sin. If you belong to Him, you are His child. If you belong to Him, you are a part of His family. Rejected, suffered, murdered, raised, God loves you. If you struggle with a bad self-image, if you struggle with thinking of yourself appropriately, try chewing on that today. God loves you more than you could ever comprehend. And if you ever doubt it, just go to the cross and see that the Savior died for you. He's a They've, he's adopted you. He indwells you. He has prepared a place in heaven for you. But I want you to notice next that our life should match our profession. That is, our profession of faith, our confession of who Jesus is, should be matched by our life. Now, just to be quite honest, in this life, our confession of faith never actually measures up to our, our life never actually measures up to our profession. Because their sanctification is, here's our confession of faith. I believe Jesus to be my Savior, my Lord. I believe Him to be who the Bible says He is. And here we are, we're, we're incrementally making our way up the, uh, up the chain. We're incrementally moving toward our confession of faith matching our uh, lifestyle, but it, but it doesn't match up perfectly. Uh, but he tells us exactly what he wants our life to look like. In fact, what we have in, in Luke 9.23 is, is Jesus' plan, plan and pattern for Christian living. His plan and his pattern. He says, deny yourself. Now, by that, he doesn't mean, as I've told you before, that you can't eat chocolate cake and watch television. What he means is there is a self-principle that resides in every human heart. It's overpowering to the unregenerate heart, but it resides in the heart of even the Christian. We have to put it to death. We have to deny it because we can't make decisions in life based solely on what's best for me. How does this affect me? We're followers of Jesus. We've got to follow the path that Jesus lays down for us. And so he says, take up your cross. Take up your cross and follow him. For us, we think, well, my cross is my mother-in-law. 
My cross is a bum knee. Well, it's neither your mother-in-law or a bad knee. Your cross is the willingness to die for Jesus. I have a friend, a member of our church. He's from China, super wonderful brother. We were riding together the other day, and he was telling me about his home church in China. His grandfather was uh, once pastor of that church, and he, he was sharing with me that his grandfather spent 20 years in a Chinese prison, and his grandmother spent five years in a Chinese prison for their faith in Jesus. I'm complaining about a bum knee, bad vision. That's not a cross to bear. That's just a part of the providence of life. He asked his grandmother, he told me, he said, Grandma, he said, Grandma was it worth it? She said, it was a blessing to suffer for Jesus. My heart was crushed in humiliation. My brother didn't mean it that way, and in one sense it was an encouragement, and in another sense it was, it was a, re a rebuke by myself to myself. It was a blessing to spend five years in prison for Jesus. We find it difficult to get out of bed. We find it difficult to make it to church on a regular, consistent basis. Like it's, like it's a burden to bear to follow Jesus, walk with Jesus. That's me. Alarm went off this morning. I thought, oh my goodness, not again. Why did I go to bed? Why did I wait till 9.30 to go to sleep? I know what I was thinking. Well, we've got to follow Jesus. Our life needs to match our profession. Now it happens incrementally, but we want it to happen incrementally. That is, we want to keep moving forward little by little, bit by bit, step by step. And so our relationship with Jesus isn't primarily about what we can get, though what we get is considerable. It's primarily about what we can do. That's the Luke 9.23 Christian life that he calls us to. And then he, he describes something that's, that's very somber in verses 25 and 26. Look with me in 25 and 26. It's what I call a somber question and a frightening promise. For what good does it to, for a person to gain the whole world but lose or forfeit himself? To have everything the world has to offer and then to spend eternity separated from God in hell. Now, that's the sober question. To work our fingers to the bone to accomplish things that aren't inconsequential or insignificant because we do have to provide for our families. We have, to, we have a life to, that we have to live. We have to earn to support, one, support our family members. But when that becomes the most important issue in all of life, something's wrong. What does it matter if we gain the whole world, lose our soul? For what, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, will be, I will be ashamed of him when I come in my glory, Jesus says essentially. That is, we're ashamed of him if we, if we put everything in the world in front of him and him in second place behind all the things that matter most. 
Now, all of us fall into that trap from time to time, but there, there needs to be moments when we, we, we come to reality, we shake ourselves back to spiritual reality, and we say, okay, I've got to get things in order again. It's going to be like that the rest of our life until we die. It's continually coming back to spiritual sanity because the other way is spiritual insanity and said, okay, we need to get our family in order. We need to get our lives in order. I need to get myself in order so that I can live the Luke 9, 23 kind of life. So I want us to go back now as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper and think about those two thoughts that I mentioned to you a moment ago, how terrible our sin, how great God's love. That's what the Lord's Supper communicates. The Lord's Supper communicates how terrible our sin, how great God's love. You might just have come out of this little section of the sermon and think, oh my goodness, uh, I, 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 I don't have things in order. We just get them in order right now. Just say to the Lord, Lord, things are out of order. I'm going to get them in order. Help me to get them in order. And celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. If you're a guest with us today and, and you're uh, faithfully seeking to follow Jesus, two steps forward, one step back, as I often say, uh, involved in an evangelical church, or maybe you're trying to find a church home, you've been baptized, uh, we would invite you to take the Lord's Supper. You might ask, well, Pastor, why, are you, why, do you all, why do you include baptism? Because baptism is the first step of obedience. Repent and be baptized. Baptism is a demonstration of our faith and commitment to Jesus Christ. It's the first step of obedience in the Christian life. So if you're a guest with us today, we would invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so we'll, we'll distribute it in just a moment. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Remember, there are two cups. You take up both cups at the same time. The bread is in one cup and the juice in the other, and then we will take them together. Would you pray with me as the deacons come forward? Our Father in heaven, we thank you today that you have provided for us all that we need in the person and work of Christ to, in order to be saved. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus is Lord of all of life. We believe him to be our Savior. Father, be with us now as we remember him by the way he asked us to remember him in the celebrating of the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.